Well, welcome back, everyone. It's wonderful to see all of you. I know I said this when we had uh, communion at 10 o'clock, but um, it's just wonderful to see your faces. I, I'm sick of looking at a camera and hoping that you're on the other side and judging whether you're on the other side by how many views the YouTube algorithms tell me that I have, which is deceptive sometimes. It's wonderful to see all of you. We're finishing up a series that we started during the pandemic called Echo the Lord's Prayer. Uh, if you remember, we were working, we're going to work through one piece of Martin Luther's small catechism every year because those six pieces are the biggest building blocks in the Christian faith. If you have those six pieces down, you understand pretty much everything about what it means to be a Christian. And so this year we're studying the Lord's Prayer and we've been walking through the different petitions and we're going to finish that up today. Um, but if you're anything like me, this series has messed with your prayer life. I think I can, I'm not exaggerating when I say this series has challenged my faith more than any other series that I've preached to you as your pastor. As we've walked through the different petitions and really dug into what they mean, it has changed the way that I approach God in my prayers. Just to remind ourselves, we started by talking about God as our Father in heaven. Often we think of God sort of as out there, a powerful force that can be for our good, but we don't think of him as a personal father who has the same care and concern and willingness and wants to provide for us that we have for our children. But he's better in that he's in heaven. And he's not bound by earth or by the sinfulness that infects every one of us fathers and mothers. Then we prayed what I thought was the most challenging part of this prayer, for me at least, hallowed be your name. To start every prayer before you ask for anything, saying, God, you're awesome, and that's enough for me. I'm going to ask you some things, but whether or not you give them to me, it doesn't matter because you are glorious and you are good, and you are doing what is good for me all the time. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, that changed the way that I prayed. It changed the attitude and gave me more peace even in my prayers. We then talked about how God's kingdom comes. Not with flashy uh, displays of power, but in ordinary ways. Christians speaking his words to each other and to the world. We learn that God's kingdom only comes because he wants it to come. It's not our effort or our expertise that brings people into the faith. And we also learn to be okay with the fact that even if our church doesn't grow in numbers, growth in faith is happening among us Christians, and that is God's kingdom coming too. We prayed that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying that God's kingdom would come, of course, in our life, but then also knowing that the greatest obstacle to God's kingdom coming in our life is us. And so we ask God to overrule us, mess with our lives, move stuff out of our lives, do what's necessary so that we don't fall away from faith. We then prayed that God would give us this day our daily bread, the things that we ask for, whether they're physical health or physical things or change in situation, we ask that God would just give us what we need, but then also know that he's going to give us far more than that so that we can benefit the world around us and the people whom he has given us. We pray to forgive us our sins just as we forgive those who sin against us. We learned that all the hate and all the injustice and all the revenge that the world has will not stop until we realize how much we have offended God. And that despite that, he still forgives us. 
the cycle will continue to repropagate itself until it is broken by divine forgiveness. In the last two weeks, we talked about leading us and delivering us. That first, God would keep us away from temptation because we know we have no chance against it. And in the cases when inevitably we come face to face with temptation, he would remind us that he is so good that we don't want to give in to that temptation. And so this week, we finish it with the doxology. Uh, but we've been trying to wrap our minds around one big idea through this entire uh, Lord's, series, uh, Lord's Prayer series. And that is that prayer is not primarily getting God to move in our direction. It's getting us to move in God's direction. If God knows what we need, can provide it, doesn't need us to ask for it, then why do we ask for it? Because we're moving our own hearts in line with God's heart. It is not the work of treating God like the divine vending machine, but verbalizing what we already know to be true about him and what he does for us so that we find peace in who he is and what he does. So today, then, the doxology. Uh, Doxology is just two Greek words smashed together, doxa, which means glory, and logos, which you maybe know as the word that is used to describe Jesus, the divine logos, or the word made flesh. That word logos is where we get our idea of logic in English. So a doxology is the acknowledgement or the thinking about glory. And the doxology that we use at the end of our Lord's Prayer is, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. But you'll notice that if you open your Bibles to Matthew 6 or Luke 11, where God records his Lord's Prayer, this isn't there. This is the only part of the Lord's Prayer that isn't actually part of the Lord's Prayer. So why do we say it? Our Catholic friends actually don't say it at all. They end the prayer with deliver us from evil. So why do we say it? Uh, Well, we have a document from the first century A.D., so within about 50 years of Jesus resurrecting and then ascending into heaven, called the didache. A didache is a, a word that means the teaching of the apostles. And it seems to be what was the first catechism. We're talking about Martin Luther's small catechism, his summary of Christian doctrine. There was a summary of Christian doctrine called the didache in the first century. And in that document, it lists a doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And so we include it not because the Bible tells us to, but because the church has included it for 2,000 years almost. What's the value? Well, first of all, Scripture includes doxologies at the end of many prayers. But what the doxology does is it frames everything that has come before it. And I would love to go through all the different parts of the doxology, kingdom and power and glory. But for today, I just want to focus on glory because that's what the word doxa means. And because we've already covered kingdom in thy kingdom come and Jesus' power is pretty obvious throughout the prayer. So we're going to talk about God's glory today and how that frames the whole prayer for us and gives us a proven escape from every feeling of guilt we've ever had. To do that, I want to focus on a story from 1 Samuel. This is the story of Hannah. Uh, To put her in a little bit of of, um, historical context, uh, Hannah was the uh, mother of Samuel, who was the prophet who anointed King David to be king of Israel. So that's kind of the era we're in. This is Hannah's story from 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim 
a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you would only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out all of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. This is the word of God. So kind of a sad story uh, at the beginning, isn't it? Two women married to the same man. One of them can have children, the other one can't, and there's a rivalry between them because of that. Before we go any further, I want to tangent just for a second, because sometimes people will use a passage like this to criticize Christianity. They say Christians say that they believe the whole Bible, but it sure seems like in the Old Testament, polygamy was okay. What do we say to that? Well, first we would say the Bible very explicitly says that marriage is between one man and one woman. But then it implicitly also says polygamy is a terrible idea. Every time polygamy shows up in the Old Testament, it is an absolute mess. And this is a perfect example, isn't it? Can you imagine the the relationship dynamics in that marriage? First between Elkanah and Hannah, where there's the feeling of guilt. Hannah, why don't you feel loved? Why don't you feel happy? What's wrong? Between Peninnah and Hannah, oh, he only comes to you when he wants more children, but with me we have really good nights. Between Peninnah and Elkanah, what did she think of him? 
Was he just using her? It was a mess. The Bible never condones polygamy. In fact, it shows it to be an absolute disaster of our sin. But let's get back to the actual story at hand. Peninnah and Hannah, they have this rivalry because one of them can have children and the other one cannot. And it's obviously very deeply affecting Hannah. The text told us that because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And then it went on year after year. And whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. So much pain that she wouldn't even eat. She'd weep regularly. What's up with that? Well, it's very obvious from the text her problem was she couldn't have children. But why is that such a big deal? I mean, haven't we gotten past that? Isn't that a little bit regressive? Like, aren't we past the era where women are chained to the stove, producing babies and making sandwiches for their man? Well, yes, and thank goodness for that. But let's be careful not to impose our Western stereotype of what is okay for men and women to do onto this ancient text. Because back then, having babies was the greatest good a woman could do for her family and for her society. First of all, for her family, because more babies meant more workers for the family business in order to make more product, which would increase your wealth and personal security. As you got older, your children would watch out for you. And for the nation, more babies means more boys, which means more men, which means more warriors, which means a stronger military presence, which either, either can defend you from an outside invader or can lead you to conquest. And so the culture was telling women, the best thing you can do for your family and your society is have babies. But let's remember that we kind of still have that. Many of you know your government will pay you hundreds of dollars a month to have a baby. We call it the Canada Child Benefit. And you can argue about its validity or if it's a good idea or not, but it's very obvious the government of Canada wants you to have babies. Why? Because more babies means more workers, which means more product, which means an increase in the economy, and children to, look care of, to take care of parents means fewer parents being taken care of by the state, and more people means growth in either political influence or even military power. And so while we don't have a cultural narrative that tells every woman you have to have babies in order to be valuable, it's still kind of lingering, isn't it? Now, Hannah, of course, was broken up by this because she couldn't do what the society was telling her to do. And we look at that and we say, thank goodness we're free of that. That a woman can live her life and she can get a career and she doesn't even have to get married or have children to be valuable to society. True. Thank God for that. But let's not forget that the same principle of cultural narratives is still being imposed on us all the time. The world that you live in in the 21st century is telling you a whole bunch of things about how you are supposed to live your life, the type of person you're supposed to be. And if you don't do those things, and you're not considered a good person by the world's standards. Now, there's a, a thousand and one ways you can apply this, but just think for a moment, what are some of the cultural narratives that we have in our society today? How about cultural narratives for women? Maybe it isn't have as many babies as possible, but is it maybe 
do everything that God has asked women to do, and most of the things that God has asked men to do, and a little bit more on top of that. Like, make sure you have at least one or two children, that they're perfectly behaved, and that they look really good in pictures, that they're getting a good education, and make sure that you have your own career, that you're pulling it off and advancing, all while keeping your house perfect, your, ha- your husband happy, and being able to still look good in Legos. I might be wrong, but that's what I'm seeing. What about for men? I think feminism has unfortunately let men off the hook of their responsibilities in a lot of ways, but I think you can boil down the cultural narrative for men into basically one word, and that's power. Either be physically powerful, you're a real man if you're built, if you can fill out a t-shirt. You're a real man if you have financial power, a lot of money. You're a real man if you have power over other people, influence, employees, people listen to you. You're a real man if you have sexual power, get a woman to do what you want. What about cultural narratives for parents? If I could maybe try to summarize cultural narratives for parents, it's make sure that your kids don't drink that, don't eat that, don't watch that, don't smoke that, don't say that, don't wash that. And if they're going to do anything, make sure that you've marked off your nine restrictions on how they're going to do that, all while making sure they're still in an art, a music, and a sport. And if your kids don't perform, guess whose fault it is? Yours. What about for kids or teens? I think we've made the cultural narrative for kids or teens. Do everything that we expect of adults with almost none of the resources. Right? Be good at, again, an art, a music, and a sport. Keep up a social life. As you get to be in your teen years, make sure that you're attracted to the opposite sex. And make sure that you're getting an education that probably includes some classes that are going to get you ahead at the next level of education in order so that you can get a job. And if you don't, you're going to end up living in your parents' basement until you're 35. And you can argue about the reasons why, but the research is saying that Kids under the age of 20 right now, suffering more depression, more anxiety, and more suicidal thoughts than any generation before them. What about for young professionals? Not into the family thing? What's the cultural narrative for you? Get a job, advance in that job, make a whole bunch of money, but while you're putting in all those hours to do all that stuff, make sure that you maintain a social life, because eventually you're going to want to get married. And make sure you get married not too early, not too late, just enough time to have just a couple babies so that you can have the perfect life. And we could go on for hours with cultural narratives, and I'm sure there are some that I did not mention, but every one of you fits into at least one cultural narrative, and you know that you're not living up, right? Every one of us, every day, has the feeling that we are not doing enough. The biggest problem that we see in our lives is the same problem that Hannah felt, just in a completely different way, that we don't live up to expectations. And whether we're from a collectivistic society, a traditional society like Hannah's, that says that you have to do this in order for the good of everybody else, or we're in an individualistic society like ours, where you make yourself, you become who you want to be, every person feels this feeling of not being enough. If only I would, 
then I would be valuable. But it goes a step further for Hannah and for us. See this uh, interaction between Elkanah and Hannah, verse 8? Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, I'm not an expert in how to talk to women. But I'm pretty sure one of the worst things you can do when a woman tells you that she's not happy is give her four reasons why she should be happy. I don't know if any of you men feel the same way. It might seem like a nice thing to say on the surface, right? I know your life's bad, Hannah. I know you can't have babies, but I love you. But what is Elkanah doing? Heaping more guilt on her, isn't he? You can't live up to the standard, but you should be happy. And isn't that what many of you feel? Yeah, maybe I'm not living up to the cultural narrative, but I feel like I should be happy. And yet, we're not. We're not happy. And what that leads us to is the same thing it led Hannah to, at least think, that it's all my fault. I should be happy, but I'm not. And since I'm an individual and all my choices affect me and it's not about the whole society out there, it must be my fault. So we have problem number one, that we don't live up to expectations. Problem number two, it's all our fault. And so most people will try to solve it in one of two ways. The first bad solution that most of us come up with when we realize that we're not living up and that it's all our fault is we try to do something about it. I'm going to get a a new spouse, a new house, a new job. I'm going to change where I live. I'm going to try some new things. I'm going to try a new diet. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to work harder at it so that I can fix the fact that I feel this emptiness all the time. But it doesn't work. It makes you a slave to, to whatever you've shifted your focus to be. Just as an example, if you're in Hannah's case... She wants to have a baby, but she can't have a baby. If she wanted to try hard or do something about it, maybe she would shift her focus. If you want to put her in a modern, uh, modern place like us, maybe she would shift her focus to her career. But then what? What happens when the career isn't as fulfilling? She's going to run this endless rat race of trying to find the next thing that's going to satisfy her, but it's never going to work. So the other bad solution that religious people come up with is try to get God to do something about it. I know I can't do it, God, so God, you do it for me. God, just this once, I really need this. God, it would make me so happy if, God, would you please? And there's nothing inherently wrong with asking God for stuff, but very often when we pray prayers like that, what are we doing? We're using God as a means to take on solution number one, to try to fix it ourselves. God, I could fix this myself if only you would give me more resources. 
God, I could fix this myself if only you would give me a different situation. And on the surface, it seems like that's what Hannah is doing. Right, God? I can't have a baby, so give me a baby. But, but what we find out as we dig into the text a little bit more is that that's actually not what she was doing. Her solution was to pray differently. To not pray to God as the divine vending machine to fix my life so that I can be happy, so I can live up to my expectations. But to do something very different. Let's, let's look at what happens. Verse 9 says, Once they had, been, they had finished eating and drinking at Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Do you get it? Probably not, because it's a Hebrew idiom. Um, this verse actually should make you say, huh? Because that's not how we talk in English. Uh, but we could maybe make a comparison to an English idiom that we have, like putting your foot down. Imagine you're learning English for the first time, and you get to a place in a text where it says, she put her foot down. You're like, what on earth does that mean? Well, we know as English speakers that means she said no, or she put a stop to it, or, or whatever. The same thing is true with the idiom of standing up. For this, uh, for Hannah, this was her taking charge. She's going to do something about it. But she's not going to try harder. She's not going to pray for God to do it for her. She's going to pray to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and then say, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Do you realize what she's asking? God, I want to participate in this good thing, but not for my glory, for your glory. God, if you give me what I ask for, I am going to completely give it back to you, not for my glory, but for your glory. Hannah would have been part of a society where the women would have gone to the marketplace and all of them would have shown off their children and Hannah had experienced that for years now, and what was she praying for? That that would continue. That at one or two years old, when the baby was weaned, she would give him to the temple and she would barely see him again. She wouldn't have the hugs and kisses of a three, four, or five-year-old. She wouldn't get to train a pubescent teenager on how to live as an adult. She wouldn't watch him grow up and maybe get married. She would give it all up. In other words, what she's asking God for is, give me the blessing, but don't give me any of the effects of the blessing. Does it seem like a counterintuitive prayer? Well, if you have a doctrine of prayer that is, God gives me stuff so that my life is better, then absolutely it's counterintuitive. But what we've been learning time and time again in this series is that prayer is not getting God to move in my direction, at least not primarily. It's getting my heart to move in God's direction. And that's exactly what happens. After she prays, Eli says, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked for. And then she says, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went on her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. As soon as she prayed that prayer, she was good. She had peace. No baby yet, no signs of pregnancy. Not sure if God's going to give her the blessing or not. She was okay. How is that possible? 
I mean, most often we think of prayer like this, like you pray and then you get the result and then you get peace. Ask for the thing and I'm on pins and needles until God gives it to me and then he gives it to me and then everything's okay. But that was not Hannah's trajectory of prayer, right? Hers was prayer and then peace and then the result. She prayed with an attitude that she didn't need what God was going to give her. Why? Because she was satisfied in God's glory. She was satisfied to not be the main character in the story. She was satisfied to not be the center of attention. Satisfied to not have her name remembered. Satisfied to do whatever it took to do good for her family and her society, even if it meant that no one remembered her. So my question for you is when you pray, whose glory are you praying for? When you pray, do you ask that God would make your life better so that you can feel better? So that you can be successful? So that you can live up to expectations? So that your life can be the way you want your life to be? Or do you pray for God's glory? Every one of us has to admit that basically all our prayers end up being at least subtly for our own glory, right? Mine included. I almost always go to God in prayer when I want something fixed in my life. But what God is calling us to is a different style of prayer. A prayer that asks, yes, seven petitions, but then wraps them all up by saying, but yours is the glory, God. This is about you. Why do you do good? Is it to live up to what people expect of you, or is it because God has made you good? It's because good is good to do, because good is good. Who is the protagonist in your story? Is Christianity the means for you to have a better life? Or is it the already finished work of Jesus Christ? You know, as we were apart for almost three months, I thought a lot about what it means to gather as a group of people in this room on a Sunday morning. And I realized that very often we, we start to make Sunday morning a chore, right? I've got to do this because I was asked to volunteer, or I have to do this because if I don't, the music's not going to sound good, or the screens aren't going to look good, or the preaching's not going to be good. This is a big workspace. But that's not what God wants. God wants this to be the one hour of your 168 every week where you sit back and let him be the main character. Let him be the main actor where he does all the work and as Exodus told us, you simply be still. The Lord will fight for you. I love you enough to tell you that the Bible is not about you. The Christian faith is not about you. It's about Jesus and his finished work in your place. Your salvation entirely depends on Jesus' work, not yours, on Christ's performance, not yours, on his effort, not yours, on his ability to live up to the expectations, not yours. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. As I put out YouTube videos and YouTube sermons, it's easy to get bogged down by the numbers, right? How many views you have, how many clicks, how many shares, how many comments, 
Are people even watching? That's the law. And it may not be YouTube clicks for you, it might be something else, but there are a thousand and one things in your life that are telling you you're not doing enough, you're not enough, but Jesus says a word of pure gospel into your life, you are, end of story. And so use prayer to align your heart with that reality. God, hallowed be your name, because you're the one doing all the work here. Your kingdom come because it's your work that makes that kingdom come. Your will be done because if it was dependent on me, I would mess it up. Give me what I need because I would keep all for myself and I would forget about you and everyone else. Forgive me my sins because I want to be the main character in the story, but that messes up my life and everyone else's life. And lead me not into temptation because I can't take it and deliver me from evil by showing me your glory. Because at the end of the day, it's all about you, God. The Bible's not about you. It's about Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for training us in prayer to remind ourselves that you are the main character of the story. That your glory is the ultimate good. That we are, we are servants of your good and gracious will. That forgiveness comes only because of you. That because of you, we are at rest. Because of you, we don't have to live up to anyone's expectations because you have lived up to the expectations in our place. So now unleash us for your glory. As people with nothing left to prove, use our hands and our mouths to serve the people around us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.